Brian's back with us to talk about how a struggle with pornography really develops. So we're going to go back in time, retrace our steps, and think about some of the factors that may contribute to a struggle with pornography that we often don't really think about. And some of those include how we feel about our own body. If you're like me, you know your mind can be your best or your worst friend. Our mind is an amazing tool that can do incredible things, but our mind can also create problems out of nowhere. Sometimes our mind keeps recommending the same solutions to problems even when they aren't working. I see this pattern play out as individuals try to overcome their anxiety, depression, or even struggles with pornography, using approaches that make sense but aren't very helpful. This podcast will show you how real researchers and clinicians are changing the way we approach mental health and reveal helpful research-supported principles designed to help real people with real problems. My name is Dr. Cameron Staley, and welcome to the Life After Series Radio. So we are back again. Brian keeps coming back for more of this um, to share his experiences and story. And we've talked quite a bit about kind of your experiences coming from some addiction approaches and programs and then going through more acceptance and commitment therapy principles through life after pornography and a lot of these more recent shifts for you. And I would say, based on what you've talked about, you're in a pretty good spot, like you're heading in a good direction. And so we kind of wanted to switch gears tonight and maybe go back in time a little bit if we could teleport. And I think there is a gap when I'm chatting with folks about pornography is often they've been in this struggle for so long and there's been so much focus on, I got to get over this. I got to stop this. And there may even be pressure from family members or partners saying, you know, why are you doing this? And just a lot of hurt feelings. I think we forget like the origin story, like where a struggle with pornography even comes from. So kind of our hope is maybe to retrace our steps a little bit and see what we can learn about. Maybe what are some of the common reasons why somebody might begin to struggle with something like pornography, which may last for a long time, but I think we forget often how innocent the roots really are. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. And I'm also admittedly very nervous because talking about the recent progress and being in a good spot and feeling so much better and happier that that's easy or easier i guess i should say but this is gonna this is gonna be a little uh, exciting um and i think i don't know just my first thought as you were talking was it's an act that starts so young um, but often you don't talk about it for years. And so you're growing up and maturing, but this behavior stays the same. And I think it's hard. The farther you go from that, the harder it is to go back to those roots. Um, and you don't want to focus on those because you're ashamed of the lack of progress that specific side of you has made <clears throat> when everything else has grown up and matured. Hmm. I've never heard it kind of explained in that way. So like right now you're like, you know, I'm in a pretty good spot. I've learned and grown, but there's a part of you that's, you've almost kind of blocked where it's like, but there's a younger part of me that I'm still not a big fan of that should have known better, should have done better. And you don't spend a lot of time like reflecting on that part of your journey. Yeah. I think you just put it to the side because you don't like, before you couldn't think about that, right? Because that was a trigger or that was oh. something else. I think what stands out to me is often what I hear is how lonely this story is and how often people begin struggling with pornography when they're quite young. And it is such a solitary, lonely journey where they're often isn't a lot of conversations with other people or interactions. And it's something that we tend to kind of bury uh, because it is such an isolated experience. I know that is very much the case for me. 
So we're kind of uncovering the root cellar here. We're like, I haven't looked in there for a little while. But like, tell us how this started. And that might be difficult to really pinpoint where this was, but you know, where did your struggles with pornography begin? Yeah, and to use the root cellar analogy, I might have to peel off some spider webs as I go <laughs> along and try and read through the dust. But um, I honestly don't think my story is that different than anyone else's. Um, and that's something I've learned recently with all the connections I've made is that there is a natural curiosity that you have as a kid. I remember growing up and I mean, sex ed and school needs some work and that's oh. probably a topic for another time. <laughs> but uh, I remember hearing like, oh, every boy experiments and wondering like, what the heck does that even mean? Like, it, like science experiments where you like blowing stuff up? Like, <laughs> and I, I'm sure I wasn't that ignorant or oblivious. Um, but I do remember um, I encountered masturbation first out of a curiosity and response to whatever natural urge incites that. And then due to a lack of education, I really didn't know what it was. Mm. And obviously for 12 year old me, it was, wow whatever dopamine spike that was like, I'm going to need that because middle school's rough. Right. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm, I, uh, I know porn didn't come along for, I mean, it wasn't years after, but it was probably months. And then I realized sexual imagery had a similar feel and response to it of it's a, get better quick method. Yeah. And so I'm not sure if it was my, my curiosity that got me exposed. And then my own, uh, I'm not sure if that's emotional instability with all the hormones going crazy and everything or just stress or the shame um, that kept me in it. Yeah. So kind of retracing your steps, the first thing you think about is curiosity. And what was it curiosity about? Like, was it about bodies or sexuality or people you're attracted to? Or like, what was the curiosity about? I would go with... I'd go with body first off. Hmm. Um, and I'm not sure if, you know how people say, <laughs> I know I've heard you say this is kind of a pet peeve of yours that people say, oh, I'm just emotional. Like I'm just an emotional person. It's like, well, hmm. yeah, of course you are an emotional person. But uh, if we're using that terminology, I would consider myself an emotional person hmm. and kind of, in my head and naturally a little more reflective, mm. I think. Yeah. And so feeling those emotions and then being curious about my body and how my body either incited or responded to those emotions, it was kind of solving this puzzle that I was just handed the pieces to and they said, Hey, figure it out. Wow. You know, I haven't thought about that, but I think that's true. Something I've observed is, there are folks, and there's a couple different words for it. We might say are more introspective okay. or more psychologically minded where they're tinkering around with what's going on inside with thoughts and emotions and body where other people are tinkering around with the toaster, like taking it apart, figuring out the mechanics. <laughs> and so I think we're curious, but I think some people are more curious about how we work inside. And I think I've found that to be true for a lot of people that Kind of struggle with sexual concerns is there's a curiosity and it's like yeah i just kind of want to figure how out how things work and i think about why that stood out to me is as a kid 
I was not that person. I was oblivious um, to a lot of that. I was not reflective on myself at all. That, that came much later. And now I'm looking back, I'm like, that's really interesting that I was unaware about an inner working and the inner world. But I'm surprised, I guess not surprised, but reminded how many people at such a young age are curious about how they work inside. And I wasn't one of those people, but it sounds like you were. You were aware of yourself at a very young age. It's all, <laughs> that's very ironic because today I was um, just working at home and my friend commented like, you're, you're someone that learns by doing. Mm. And I think, I, again, this is probably an entire other conversation, um, but it is interesting that your personality, if that's what we're defining that as, can lead you into different behaviors. Um, and that certainly was one of them for me. Um, and then obviously the shame and everything came later with perfectionism and maybe that's what kept me stuck. But my, the question that I've been thinking since we started is why, I'm not sure if what I heard going off that childhood statement of, oh, every boy experiments. And I'm just mm. to clarify that like experiments with masturbation or pornography or something like that. Yeah. Um, figuring out their sexuality. And is that, why do some people get over it so quick? Yeah. I think that statement of everybody experience, I don't think that's true. Um, I think it's pretty common. I'd say it's fairly common to be curious about how our bodies work. Like, I think that's socialized so young when you got this little baby or toddler and you're like, oh, here's your toes, here are your piggies, and, you know, where's your chin? Like, we're very encouraging of like, oh, you're walking and reaching, look what your body can do, and now let's eat. Like, all of these new movements and functions are met with so much excitement and reinforcement. And then we almost put, like, a blurry out part for the genitals, like, whoa, whoa we're not going to talk about those parts or those functions but a kid's already programmed to be like oh yeah like everybody thinks my body's amazing and it's adorable and does all these things and it's naturally going to explore it explores its environment explores its body and i'd say i've i've had several kids now and it's pretty normal for kids to explore their genitals that's part of it and pretty quickly they discover oh it feels good and it's like yeah that's just how it is. And there's no shame attached to that. There's no language attached to it. There's no word that it's like, I'm masturbating. It's like, no, that, that comes so much later. Uh, but it's just from a very innocent place that we socialize, where it's like, we want to encourage exploration and curiosity. For me, those are the ingredients for learning, like so many good things. But then when it comes to sexuality we like discourage learning or exploration or curiosity and not only that we shame it and judge it and vilify it but for a little kid that's been told their whole life that being curious and learning is what we're shooting for and is really healthy i mean it comes out of left field where it's like well why is this bad then like my whole life i was told to do these things why is this one different and I don't think it has to be different. I just think our own discomfort around sexuality makes it different, but it doesn't have to be that way. So I think some people are more curious than others. And I think for me, looking back, I don't remember when I learned about masturbation or the word, but that wasn't something that I was even aware of or curious about at all, because I was just not that introspected little kid. Um, I was out there trading basketball cards and building Legos and shooting hoops outside. I just did not have a curiosity about that. Um, so I don't think that's quite universal for everybody. But I'd say more often than not, people are curious about body and sexuality, that that's pretty typical. And yet we all have some kind of differences in how aware we are. And I'd say you were probably a lot more aware little kid than I was. 
yet that awareness is probably what kept me <laughs> stuck in the behavior. Yep. And that's what's so unfortunate or unfair is like that awareness, I would say, is a pretty positive, healthy trait. But if not, it's not met with good education or support or conversation, it leads to that trap, that cycle that it's like, I am so aware of these things that my emotions are now intensified and I'm still curious. And there's not like a way forward um, where people that may be less aware that may not be stuck in that same kind of trap. So if, if you were to strip all that away and on just the shame, it seems like it would be a pretty easy problem to eradicate. Mm. What do you and mean by that's, that? That's probably such an oversimplification of everything. But I mean, if I would have, and this is all hypothetical, because I'm sure I'm forgetting millions of factors and you never know. But if I say I was better educated and there was no shame around it, mm. I may not have gotten stuck in that behavior. I miss, I of course would have still been curious and had that awareness trait and been like, Hey, what's this? Um, or may, I might not have even had to ask that because of education, but yep, it seems like that might be, you know, is that an oversimplification? No, I think you're right on. I think struggles with pornography are very preventable. It's not an inevitable thing. In my mind, it's not, oh my goodness, we've got this epidemic. It's like, no, it's quite preventable with education and understanding. And it's just like, we are more un uncomfortable with having those chats. So we'd rather just say, no, it's this epidemic. It doesn't have to do with our lack of comfort about having conversations or our unwillingness to educate our children. We're going to blame it on something else. But for me, it's absolutely preventable. And I think it can start as simply as when you're talking with kids about their body, you talk about their elbows and their toes, but you talk about their penis and their vulva too. I think you talk about all the anatomy and the function and really normalize that, yeah, you know, sometimes it feels good to stretch and to run. And, you know, sometimes it feels good to touch your genitals. Like that's pretty normal. Um, however, if you touch them a lot, sometimes they might get sore. So maybe you don't want to do that. <laughs> And it's like, you know, these have a purpose later on, but yeah, being curious about it is quite normal. And one thing that I've learned is for some people, part of their sexual development might include self-touch or self-stimulation, whereas for others, it really doesn't. I would say for me, that wasn't a huge part of my experience. And I think I, I still developed okay sexually, but for others, that kind of self-exploration of their body and how things work is part of their sexual development. So I think even just putting that on people's radar that, you know, touching yourself sometimes to understand how your body works might be part of your developmental trajectory. And for others, it isn't. And that's okay. Um, so just recognizing there's some options here, um, but it is really more about learning and developing. And it shouldn't be like, if you masturbate, you're gonna go blind. Like that kind of fear-based thinking is just going to encourage a kid to do that more because now they're scared about going blind. So now they're going to cope with that by more self-touching. And I think just using words that are more simple where, you know, it might feel good to touch your penis or your vulva, that makes a lot more sense to a kid than you're masturbating. I mean, that is just a really long word that sounds intimidating and scary and is loaded with all kinds of connotations, especially from a religious context where that might even be viewed as sinful. Um, but for other people, that might be part of their sexual development and not for everybody. But I think giving people that opportunity to understand that part lets people to kind of select their journey a little bit more and, and just opens up those conversations. I love that. Because I, I mean, I think black and white. And so you've got one side where it's, masturbation is a sin. And then on the other side, you've got, oh no, it's part of your development. Totally natural. We're going to educate you on it, normalize it. And if you are aware and curious, then that may be part of your development. If you're not, 
might not have to be. Yeah. That seems like a much better, like easy choice alternative to shaving it and trying to just put you in a straight jacket and tell you you're going to go blind. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot simpler. And I think, so that's kind of one piece of it is self-exploration, curiosity about bodies, which is so healthy. That is so natural. And I think about it's when we feel uncomfortable about our bodies. And, and I think I've heard people kind of growing up in homes where it's like, oh yeah, I never saw my parents dressing or getting out of the shower. Like people were super private and it was uncomfortable. And it's, I often see more of that discomfort around bodies contributing to even more curiosity and more searching for things online because it's like, we don't know, we don't know how bodies work and you can't see them. They're bad somehow. And it's like, I think bodies are inherently good and safe, but there's just discomfort around body and how our own body looks and how our own body works. And I think we forget that that is often an origin for why somebody might begin to look at pornography. It's just curiosity about body. And yet there's not safety to talk about bodies or understand them or look at images. And so we find another way to do that and it's through pornography. And pornography does not have to be part of that equation at all. It really could start with more curiosity and comfort around bodies. That's so interesting. I had two questions and I forgot my first one. Shoot. Well, I guess maybe a comment is I think the language contributes a lot to that too as well. Because I remember growing up and it was always like private parts, right? Yep. Like what better way to put a fence around some and turn the electric <laughs> shock on. Yep. Um, but I guess, okay. My question was, can your own, right when you started um, talking about that, I thought of like, can your own body shame lead to um, that as well? And I don't know if that's like, perpetual masturbation to help you feel better Mm. but is that a common thread i would say absolutely and awareness about body shame in relation to pornography is probably nearly absent i don't think we make that connection because we focus so much on the sexual images as the driving factor and that it's addicting and that's really the problem but i think it comes down to a lot of how we feel about our body is modeled and it's modeled by our parents and older siblings. And often you'll hear messages like, well, I'm not in good enough shape or I should eat better. I'm overweight or, you know, I don't look good in this. I just don't feel comfortable or you need, you need to dress more modestly. Like it's something wrong about your body that we need to cover it a certain way. And it doesn't fit, you know, kind of the, the prototype or what should be expected or normal. And it's really subtle things. But I think we begin to observe that, oh, we're supposed to have a very specific type of relationship with our body. And it's one that's quite negative. And it's one that's quite shaming and quite judgmental. That no matter how we look, it's probably not okay and we should hide it. Um, that it's, it's not good. And like you said, private parts. I think I remember that language too growing up. And even like taking a bath or shower, I'd like wash my body. It's like, well, how do I wash this area? <laughs> am I allowed to? And it's like, well, of course, like it's good hygiene. But there was like, wait, is there like different rules? And it's like, there's just not enough conversation around that. So then we just feel like if we can't talk about it, it must be bad. And it's my body. So my body must be bad. And so to have that kind of body shame, we're going to find things to soothe ourselves. And you discover around kind of the early childhood, eight to 12 range that, yeah, touching your genitals feels better. And there's like a reprieve from that shame momentarily until it comes right back. But it's like, that helps me feel better and gives me an escape from that. Um, But I think a lot of it does come from body shame. And I think that is way more universal than struggles with pornography. A lot more people could identify with that where it's like, yeah, I haven't always felt good with my body and I feel insecure at the beach or by the pool or in the locker room it's like oh my goodness we're changing clothes and it's like what is that about 
that's body shame. And I think we, we could get that a lot better, but I think we forget that, but that's often some of the origin of why somebody might struggle with pornography. I'd never thought about that before, but I, I think that absolutely is a relevant factor in that equation. And that, but I think going back to those two options, if you talk about it, if you normalize it and say, hey, your body's different than my body, than his body, than her body, and it functions differently, it digests differently. Yeah. I think <laughs> there's a there's a lot of work we gotta do, huh? <laughs> there's a lot of work. And I think it, it's really subtle things. So I enjoy my privacy when I'm in the bathroom, but for the most part, kind of have an open door policy where my kids are getting ready in the morning and and they might see dad getting in or out of the shower. And for me, that's pretty healthy just to communicate that you know, I'm, I'm taking a shower. That's good hygiene, but I'm not ashamed of my body. And I think when my kids are using the bathroom, they're welcome to shut the door and have privacy. But I think communicating that, you know, our bodies by definition are okay and we take care of them. This is how we do it. And when we go outside, we do cover up when we're in public because that's a pretty healthy pro-social thing to do. Um, but in your own home, you should feel comfortable. But I think we, we sexualize bodies where they don't have to be. I think bodies have the capacity for sexuality and sexual arousal, um, but bodies can just be bodies. They don't have to be sexual objects or sexualized, um, but they can just be bodies. And I think we forget that. We're like, no, cover them up, lock the door, bolt it shut. And it's like, just being more okay with bodies is gonna go really, really far, but it just comes back to our own discomfort around that, that leads to more questions and more curiosity and then more struggles. That's so interesting. I've never gone down this mental path before thinking about it like this. Cause I mean, my mind goes to like 800 years ago when it wasn't art unless there was a naked person in it. Like, Oh yeah. And it was so, it was beautiful. It was normal. And now it's completely flipped. Yeah. And yeah, I think I agree with you. I don't want people thinking we're like condoning public nudity, right? Like <laughs> no. go like streaking through New York City, right? But like <laughs> I think there's a there's that healthy balance of okay, you're in a safe environment and you feel comfortable and it's healthy to be secure in your own skin. Yeah. Your own body. It is. Yeah, I, I like that. I hadn't thought about the art, but you're right. You look at Michelangelo's, Michelangelo's work and Da Vinci, and it's like, these were really classic portrayals of the body. And it's art. And I hadn't realized this, but at my university in our gymnasium, you walk into the front lobby and there's a huge mural on the wall. And it's a bunch of people walking around kind of on this beach and they're all naked. And I walk in there, I'm like, what is that doing there? <laughs> And it's like, it's really artistically done, but like no one's wearing any clothes and it exposes people's like chests. And it's like, wait, this is a university. Why, why is that up there? But I think about it. It's like, it's in the gymnasium. It's where you go to exercise. And you think back to the Olympics, the Olympic athletes were not wearing clothes. They were athletes. Like the body was celebrated. It was healthy. I mean, it's work of art. And it, I guess if we go a little bit religious here, I think that was Satan's first tactic in the Garden of Eden to say, cover up, feel bad about your body. I know God created you in his own image and it's healthy and pure and divine. The first thing I'm going to say to you is feel bad about your body, go cover up. That's where it started. He didn't say, look at some sexual images. He said, your body's bad, feel bad about it. And I think that's the deception. That's the shame. And it starts with our body. I had never thought about that before. That changes that whole interaction. That's really a fascinating insight. That's so cool. Yeah. Because what a powerful way to 
in, in taking the religious implications out of it, but to, to feel such strong emotions in a negative way is to question your own self yep. and to think you're bad. Yeah. Like you could do anything if you had the power to manipulate that. That's, that's a really interesting, uh, I'm gonna have to spend some time on that one. Yeah, I think that's where it starts. And I, I think our bodies really are a unique, pretty special gift. And in my mind, I do think religiously, and I think we are created in the image of God. Um, that's a special thing. So if that was so unique, then yeah, someone would try to erode that, that specialty, um, that divine quality. And I'm always amazed when I'm kind of leading a therapy group and we're talking about a range of mental health issues from struggles with depression or trauma or um, anxiety, whatever it is. Often one of the most sensitive things to talk about is eating and how we feel about our body. And it's like, oh, like we all got bodies and we all eat. But it's like, I know we're in a really safe group when people are able to venture in about how they feel about eating food and how they feel about their body and the messages they've heard. And I've never led a group where someone's like, well, I can't connect with that. I love my body, it's wonderful. I've never thought about it. It's always like, oh yeah. You know, I've felt tremendous shame and discomfort around eating and what that means. And I'm not the way it should be. And it's like, that's amazing. But that's often way more sensitive area to talk about than the host of mental health issues and I'd even say people are more inclined to talk about a struggle with pornography than they are to talk about eating in their body. Those feel like even more delicate and challenging places to go. Well, we're going to have to have the life after eating series then too. <laughs> One of these days, I would love to get there. But I, for me, I appreciate thinking about, you know, what are these underlying factors because they are quite universal, they are quite relatable. And I think we forget that when this, it's some adult, typically male struggling with pornography, and it's easy to say, yeah, you're a horrible addict and you're dangerous, but we forget these roots where you were once a little kid and a little child that was just curious, figuring out how bodies work. And that is where we all start. And then pretty early on, shame shows up around bodies and sexuality and sexual behavior but we all come from that same pretty innocent kind of child place. And yet when we get to adults, we often forget that ourselves, but often partners and family members forget that too. And we're way quicker to judge and vilify folks. But I often think about these roots and I've got kids in that age range where kids eight to 12, they are children, they are children. And I think we forget that part. And sometimes looking back, we're like, why I should have known better. Why would I struggle with something like this? And we forget because we're adults now, but we were kids then. I mean, we were unprepared to cope with emotions. We did not understand sexuality. We were not aware of body shame. <laughs> we're not aware, you were aware, but you were not aware in that degree to understand all these factors and forces. But looking back in our adult mind, we're like, you should have known better, but it's like, Nah, you're a child. Like children need to be nurtured and taught and supported and allowed some space to navigate this. And I think like you said, oh, I just kind of buried that. I have not thought about that in a long time because that little child is still attached with so much shame. And that is so, oh, what's the word? It's so wrong, but so sad to think about. We would say, all right, little child, I want you to carry this shame around for a really long time, completely alone. And then when I get older, I'm gonna leave you and you can just keep holding on to it. And it's like, oh, wow. So much of it just comes back to that for me. Not to bring religion in again, but like be as little children it has a whole new, whole new take now. Yeah. I, I love, I love that. When is that dissonance introduced? Because if you were to, I mean, talk about a massive variability in body chemistry and anatomy, you've got babies that are very overweight, underweight, but there's no, 
Shane, they're all cute, you know, yeah. like it's, yeah. what it's so interesting. And like, if there was a baby with a six pack, you think it was the weirdest <laughs> thing ever. But now on Instagram, if you're 20 something and you don't have a six pack, you're shamed for it. Like, yep. Is that just, that's gotta be societal. Yep. I'm assuming. Absolutely. And I don't know when it starts, but that does strike me. Like I do a lot of teaching healthy diaphragmatic breathing and we grow up like sucking our gut in and, and flexing our stomach to keep things tight and wearing tight clothes. So we look good and we start to breathe from our chest a lot more to compensate and chest breathing is not only inefficient for oxygen exchange, but it incorporates other muscles in your shoulders and neck that leads to tension and muscle problems and headaches and migraines. And so it causes all this unnecessary stress and arousal. And you look at a little baby breathing and they're breathing from their diaphragm. It's just coming up and down. Like babies know how to be healthy. And then we socialize all of that out of them and say, no, you, it's more important to look good than to be healthy. And it's like really a healthy breath is coming from your diaphragm. And if your belly is nice and round and relaxed, that's healthy breathing. But it doesn't look attractive. So you shouldn't do that. Like, so we compromise our own health and well-being to fit what we think is attractive or looks good. And yet that is eroding our own physical health and mental health at the same time. But I think it starts early. Like I think about one of my kids, he was a, a hefty little kid. And we were like, oh, he's healthy, he's eating, he just loves to eat. And like going to these doctor checkups, they're like, he's at the 90th percentile, like you need to start cutting back. And it's like, I think he's probably still within the range of normalcy for children. But that message came really early on from a doctor looking at BMI metrics. That's such a flawed system. But we're introduced to that so early that your kid should be within this percentile. And if it's too low or too high, it's, it's wrong. And then we're, we're kind of, we take that with us where it's like our weight should be this certain much, our BMI should be this much, but really there's way more variability than that. But I think those messages and pressure on parents is introduced really early. And I think we heard those messages from physicians before my kid was even verbal. I think it's really fascinating that in the past like 10 minutes, we've gone from like sexual health and development to mental health and development to physical health and development. And I, I will always agree with the holistic approach to health in that you can't, can't might be a very definitive word, but anything you're doing in regards to one of those aspects of health will influence the other. Yeah. Um, and so my curiosity is, can that black and white option I presented with like masturbation, it's a sin or let's get educated on it, normalize it. And then you decide if that's going to be part of your development or if it's not. And does that carry over? I mean, is that eating? Yep. I think it, that's the principle is let's empower people with education. This is your body. What do you want to consume? What kind of behaviors do you want to engage in? And then allow people to kind of figure things out. And often I've seen that when people engage in unhealthy eating or unhealthy coping, they kind of self-correct where it's like, oh yeah, that didn't really get me the outcome I'm looking for. Like I thought it was cool to eat cake for breakfast, um, but I actually don't <laughs> feel good. My tummy hurts. I don't have a lot of energy. I do have some headaches. Maybe I do need to eat more water and have cereal or have a waffle. Like, I think we start to realize what is healthy and what isn't. But if we're just said, this is bad because I said so, I don't, as humans, we're like, well, why? I mean, that curiosity is so natural. We're going to figure it out for ourselves. And that's like learning the hard way. Like, why didn't I, you just do what I told you to? It's like, because that's not how learning works. Like we learn at our own pace in our own way. And so having somebody to truly mentor you or coach you or parent you would be providing you the education and giving you some space to figure some things out and not allowing people to do dangerous things, um, but allowing people to figure things out. 
And so I think about like wellness in general, and I'll, I'll throw in another one, like financial wellness. And I think about with my kids, we started early to, here's some chores, here's a little allowance for you. You can do whatever you want with it. And in our household, we still pay tithing and we encourage some savings, but we say, hey, let's go to the store, see what you wanna buy. And I think about how helpful that is. And I've got kids that are pretty young and sometimes they just wanna buy the first thing they see. Other times they're like, well, I got like five bucks, I could buy this, but I really want this, to this toy is 20 bucks. And it's like, yeah, it's up to you. You could spend a few more weeks saving up for that, or you could buy that now. What would you like to do? And it's like, I want them to make the mistakes now where it's a $5 toy or a $20 toy instead of it's a $8,000 car or a couple hundred thousand dollar house where it's like, figure out how money works and how far it goes. And if you feel good about your impulsive purchase or not, or saving, it's like, let's learn it now when the stakes are pretty small. Like a little kid touching their genitals, the, the stakes are pretty small. That's more self-exploration and learning. I'd figure that out now before there are adults where the stakes are much higher. The consequences are much higher for figuring out sexuality with other people or partners or buying things that are really expensive. It's like, I'd rather people learn that early on where there's some safety um, and they can kind of bounce back from learning about some of these things. I think we're so afraid of, well, that's, that's bad or that's a sin, you just can't do it. But I think there's some learning that can occur early on that can be really helpful to avoid some major kind of issues down the road. I've said before, I'm always an agent of agency. And so whenever the option is there and it's mindfully decided, I have to assume that that's the healthiest approach. Yeah. Even if it does lead to mistakes, which yep. is only human. Yep. And that's hard for me to say because perfection is the only way, but <laughs> no, I, I love that. And I, this whole time I'm thinking, oh man, like if I would have had this education and if I would have had the option early on to say, Hey, okay, this is what masturbation is. I have a decision. Who knows how different this struggle would have been, or if it even would have been a struggle at all. Yeah. But I'm grateful that now I've learned all these lessons and hopefully the massive influx of attention on all these struggles and issues will lead to better education and not just a furthered blurriness around the struggle and we try to censor it and you know like yep. pixelize the pixelate the regions we don't want to talk about yep yeah, I think you're right on. And I think we may have talked about this before, but going back to the Garden of Eden, I mean, the second you say you can have any fruit you want, except for this one. I mean, that's the one we're going to focus on and fixate on. And that's the same thing. Like, oh yeah, exploring, learning is great, but don't learn about your body. It's like, well, okay. Now you just set up the scenario where that kid's really going to be curious and want to figure some things out. Um, but just saying like, yeah, if you want to understand this more, let's talk about it. Let's give you some education. And I found that letting people choose, it really decreases that need for compulsive behaviors where it's gotta be done in secret and it's gotta be done really quickly and then you gotta feel really bad about it. Instead, it's just more learning. It's just more development. So I think that's part of it. And then the other part of it is because of technology and internet, pornography is everywhere. So there needs to be some literacy about what pornography is. And it's gotta be with your kids that are pretty young to say pornography is like movies. This is Hollywood, this is fantasy, this is not real. This is not how relationships work. This is not how healthy sexuality is. This is not what bodies look like. The conversations and dialogue you're having do not represent consent. They do not represent relationships. They often don't represent intimacy. There's cameras, there's scripts, there's makeup people, there's lighting. These are Hollywood productions. This is not real life. This is not sexuality. This is not healthy sexual behavior. You're not gonna learn about a healthy relationship. You're not gonna develop good expectations about how this is gonna work or gender roles from this. 
and I'm talking generally because there might be some good educational material out there, but for the most part, pornography is that. It's fantasy. It's entertainment that some adults choose to view as entertainment, and that's an option for some adults too. Um, personally, I don't choose to view pornography for entertainment, but some adults too, and that can be okay in certain relationships and contexts, um, but when it's secretive or you believe that this is how things work, I'm learning about sexual behavior and activity and what people like, it's not. Just like I wouldn't learn about business from watching The Wolf of Wall Street or whatever movie, like that's not how it works. I'm not gonna learn how to defend my family from watching Lord of the Rings. Like, no, you don't pull out a long sword. Like this is Hollywood, this is fantasy. But instead, we don't talk about pornography and just say it's, it's bad um, or it's sinful. And then when you come across it, you don't really have the literacy that you need to be able to recognize that the things you're looking at are not a very healthy or accurate representation. Um, we need to talk about relationship health in a lot better detail and about being respectful and consent and shared values and development and the purpose of sexuality within a safe, committed relationship. I think we need to have those conversations, but instead we kind of develop these ideas from looking at sexual images because nobody really helped us get the framework. Because when you start looking at those when you're a kid, we you believe that the movies are they're real. Like I could really be diehard like Bruce Willis. Like I could take down a helicopter by driving a car off a ramp. Like you can't. Those are staged. This is just not how it works. But little kids are not able to see that. Like Avengers are real. And it's like, they're not, they're not. It's Marvel comic universe. It's not. And so I think the same kind of literacy training around pornography needs to be there to adequately prepare children. But what happens most often is we don't talk about what pornography is. We don't talk about bodies. We say, good luck kid. And then when they start to struggle, it's like, well, how could you? It's like, how could you not is really more accurate that without the preparation, the literacy training, you're going to struggle. That's such an interesting concept because, and you're right. If, if pornography is that forbidden fruit, right? It's not like we're in the garden of Eden and there's only one tree. It's like, there's only one apple tree and the rest of the trees are forbidden fruit. Like it's everywhere. And so the education around that needs to be proportional to the amount of exposure that kids are going to get. Yep. And how important that's going to be. Yep. That's, that's like parenting 101. I'll start, I'll start paying you. <laughs> <laughs> it is. And I think the other part, thinking about that holistic approach is a lot of this is gonna come down to the connections you have with your children as a parent. And do you have that kind of relationship where you can talk openly and then you can make mistakes and it's met with learning or forgiveness or understanding instead of like punitive and criticalness. I think the quality of the relationship you have in the home can contribute to whether or not somebody's gonna struggle. And not always, but I think that's a big part of it. Um, where if there is that that relationship, that sexuality and navigating sexual images that are everywhere, it can be navigable, I think, with that relationship. But if it's like, you know, you're on your own with that. Good luck, kid. It's going to be really challenging to dodge all the obstacles in the way without wrecking every once in a while. But I, I think with that relationship and education and openness and comfort, and really, as a parent, that probably requires you to do your own work. And sometimes I get that from a parent. They'll say, oh, my kids are looking at porn. How do I help them or get them to stop doing it? And often my first thought is like, I'm curious how you are and where you're at with your own comfort around your own body and having conversations around sexuality, how you view yourself. And I think it's, it's going to probably start there. And that's not all of it, but I think kids are often responding to parents. And I think we're, we're not aware of that. We forget what it's like to be a kid. Once you're an adult, for some reason we forget it. Um, but it's like, yeah, they're, they're listening, they're watching, they're observing. And so if we're uncomfortable around these things or modeling that our bodies aren't okay, 
kids are picking it up. And instead parents are like, tell my kid to stop doing this. And it's like, it's actually more complex. And guess what? You might have a role to play in your child's struggle with pornography. I always love the analogy of like your kid's first steps, right? And no kid just starts walking. It's between mom and dad and kid goes one step and falls flat on his face. <laughs> and the parents don't like scold the child for falling over. They're like the most supportive and loving they've ever been yeah. trying to get you to take that next step. And for some reason, you're right. You forget that relationship and you think that because you're not a cute adorable little diaper wearing child that when you fall over people are just going to scold you um but no i i agree 100 percent. it's that relationship that is most impactful in standing back up so cute yeah, it not is. even falling over in the first place. <laughs> yep, it's getting back up. And I think it, at some point, I think it's often our parents are insecurity, where if our kid's not the best at soccer, if they're not kicking five goals a game when they're four, I mean, that reflects poorly on me, or if they can't spell good, um, or if they struggle with anxiety or have ADHD. But, oh, man, if they struggle with pornography or masturbation, that looks really bad at, on me as a parent. And so we try to offload all that responsibility on the kids and be like, you got to fix this because you're destroying my image of me being a super good parent where my kids are not going to struggle and they're going to be valedictorian captain of whatever team and not struggle with these things. And often it just comes from us not being aware of really where that kid's developmental readiness is and what they really need it's us trying to manage our own image and that that feels crappy and even as i say it i'm like feeling guilty or i'm like oh i'm sh i do that too or i'm like come on let's practice basketball so you can make a few more buckets so daddy looks better it's it's inescapable but that's us putting our things on our kids instead of us taking things off our kids to help them and i think that is way more common than we think we're not aware of that as children parents are often not aware of that and so we end up with these compulsive behaviors, not really aware of all the factors that led to that. And yet, once you're the kid struggling with that compulsive behavior, now it's all on you to fix it, even though it wasn't all on you to get there. And that's the part that I think is missed when we focus on you have a pornography addiction. It just really wipes out all of the complexities and dynamics and relationships and health issues and modeling and comfort and shame and body there's a lot more reasons why people struggle and i think as we step back and start to see those we can have a lot more compassion understanding for ourselves and for other people and that judgment response and that fear response can kind of melt away where it's like oh i i get it now i see that now and we can be more helpful instead of being the one kind of waving our finger like how, why how why did you make me look so bad or how how could you what a great approach to health. Like that's, if we could define it right there, that that's it. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> Amen. Well, I appreciate you, Brian, being able to, or I guess being willing to dust off those cobwebs and think about, you know, where did this start? And I think it is challenging to retrace our steps and remember, because often some of those memories aren't the best and they were pretty lonely. And it's, we're kind of socialized to move past this. You need to forget about that stuff. And it's like, no, that, those are part of your experiences. They don't need to be buried. They can be included in your early chapters of your book of life. It, those are part of your experiences. But I think, yeah, we're quick to want to forget those and move past those because we feel bad about them. And yet if we look at it objectively, we were really innocent children doing what children do. And the role of shaming that part of our development, there's really no place for that. Because we all go through that. And we all need a lot more support than we probably get.
and it's so funny i'll hear adults um and of an older generation and they'll be like oh i was when i was in my 20s oh it didn't i was making mistakes and i was still young and i'm over here thinking i'm 90 <laughs> as a 23 year old thinking every decision is my last um but i i think that's part of the human experience is you always moments are big yeah and so mistakes are big <laughs> yeah but when you look at it long term and i'm glad I, we were talking about this before and I was a little apprehensive to go back and dig out those early chapters that were sealed and locked and put in a bank vault and thrown in the bottom of the ocean and yep. put a volcano on top of them, you know, yep. but that's a healthy exercise. Um, and to think of how many insights we've gained from just this conversation has been uh, validating of the fact that it's, it's good to go back and look at those. Yeah. And if you're interested in getting to know yourself, it's like reading a book. You learn and you spend time with yourself and figure it out. Yep. It's helpful. And I think about, I try to live my life very present focus and I'm a super future oriented person where I'm enjoying where I'm going. I can't wait to see where I'm going next. And sometimes I have to remind myself that it's okay to flip back. And remember where you've been and appreciate some of those milestones and accomplishments, but also honor some of those struggles and those learning processes. Because if I don't do that, I can't relate to my kids that are going through those things now. I have to remember what it was like back then. I can't help them very well from my adult mindset. I have to remember what it was like back then. And so I share with my kids a lot of stories about these, this is how limited your dad was. And they laugh and they think it's funny. And, and I hope it conveys that, you know, it's okay. It's normal. Like you would not guess your dad did some of these things that he did as a kid, but you will too. And that's okay. Um, and I think it's helpful to dust it off. But I also think to write this story that's worth living, it is living now and creating the life you want now. It's not, well, I got to fix the crap from my past to make it good now. Or, you know, maybe someday in the future, I'll be happy. It's like, no, that it really does exist now. But I think we have this mind where we can anticipate the future. And at times it is helpful to revisit the steps to recognize, oh yeah, that is how we got here. And maybe that can help us be a little bit more present and a little bit more understanding in this moment. And I think it's healthy to have that flexibility to go back. But I wouldn't say like, you know, we got to spend years of therapy figuring, fixing that stuff when you were 12. Like, not necessarily. But I think recognizing those factors, honoring some of those to allow us to get back to our life now, I think is really healthy and often quite productive for a lot of people. I agree. This is certainly evidence of that. <laughs> well, as always, it's fun. I always learn a lot and enjoy hearing your insights, but I think even bigger than that, I, I do. And just always impressed with your willingness to say, Hey, this is challenging, but let's do it. Let, let's figure out what's there and see if this can be helpful for me and for others. And I do think that's so unique to share your journey and the way that you're doing. And um, I just, yeah, I just feel good inside that the things that you're sharing and your willingness to do this is going to be so helpful for other people that may be able to get to this point, but are not quite there yet. And just being able to observe your experience is really going to help people get to that place themselves. Thank you. I, I hope it's, I know it's empowering for me. Um, even just talking about these things, it's all beneficial and relevant and helps me learn and uncomfortably helps me grow. And <laughs> I just, I hope it's, it can help someone else do the same thing. Awesome. Okay, Brian. Well, let's do it again. Will do next week. Okay. Have a good night, my right. friend. You too. See ya. Oh, I pushed the wrong button. Stop record. Hey, thanks for listening. Please remember to rate and subscribe. I know you might be facing some issues in your life or know someone who is. Issues like anxiety. 
challenges in dealing with emotions, or other compulsive behaviors like unwanted pornography. And I know it's tough to talk to people about problems. Difficult to stare those obstacles down that we face in life and to really know how to deal with them. It's hard to know what to say and when to say it. And then when that moment you finally reach out to family and friends happens, sometimes it falls flat. I haven't found many programs teaching effective strategies like mindfulness, how to improve relationships, and ways to address unwanted pornography viewing through research supportive principles. So whether you simply want to help with a problem like unwanted pornography, difficulty responding to emotions, or just want to understand the world of someone struggling with porn a little better, head over to lifeafterpornography.com and get in on the next training. There you'll learn the exact same strategies individuals addicted to pornography used to transform their lives by implementing principles from evidence-based treatment shown effective in research for reducing unwanted pornography viewing. You'll learn the secrets, the myths, the enemies to recovery, and the LAP framework for dealing with unwanted porn viewing that we call WAVE. If that's something that interests you, click the link in the description or just head over to lifeafterpornography.com. I'm Dr. Cameron Staley. See you on the inside.